0: Pike, three inches long, perfect pike in all parts, green, tigering the gold. Hello folks, and welcome back to We Read This. My name's Ash, and today I move stunned by my own grandeur to talk about the poem Pike by Ted Hughes. In doing so, I'm breaking away a bit from the current eerie this rank-and-file of King Arthur-related texts, and those connected to Shakespeare's history plays. And the reason is that during my recent episode on The Sword in the Stone by T.H. White, I got distracted by the sight of a fish, a fish called Mr. P, that hoved into view, the battle-scarred old despot of a pike that ruled the moat of the Castle Sauvage. In the novel, the young King Arthur is transformed by Merlin into a fish, as part of a series of animal transformation trials, in which the wizard shows the future king the nature of power among different races – birds, insects, fish, and so on. In my favourite scene in the novel, Arthur meets the tyrannical Mr P, who is described as having a face ravaged by all the passions of an absolute monarch – by cruelty, sorrow, age, pride, selfishness, loneliness, and thoughts too strong for individual brains. Had King Lear, or perhaps Macbeth, survived their plays, this is the kind of absolute monarch we might find. Horribly experienced, shaken out of their wits to a place beyond guilt, proud, paranoid, physically broken, and mentally fried. I better not say battered. The scene is written with impressive delicacy and horror. White's novel is full of comic caricatures, like the scatological hawk called Colonel, Sir Grimoire Grummersome, and King Pellinore, who lampoon both chivalry and the tally-ho, let's bash the bosh, public school-mannered field marshal type, familiar to the interwar period White was writing in. By contrast, Mr P is played with a straight face, his vast, ironic mouth drawn downward in a kind of melancholy. White gets his jokes in, we are informed that the pike has clean-shaven chops, but he doesn't negate the sense of danger. It is quite different when Arthur in bird form meets Colonel the hawk, We feel the discomfort of being a child in the company of a drunk or mad old relative, threatening to explode into tears and racism at any moment. His bigoted outbursts locate him to a certain time and a certain class. It is embarrassing, dangerous in its way, but it is also civilised in its formality. Colonel is being socially unacceptable. Society may be wounded, but it is there to wound. There is no such comfort felt during the meeting with Mr P. We are in his world, and what Arthur confronts is a power both ancient and alien to him. We might not know exactly how the chain of command for Birds of Prey operates, but the Colonel's very name places him somewhere on the scale. Mr P's identity is much murkier. He also goes by the names Old Jack and Black Peter. But as Merlin says, most people have the sense not to mention him by name at all. And in the space of his fleeting appearance in the book, the pike is referred to as variously Emperor, Lord, King, Monarch, and even likened to Uncle Sam. His power stretches out of his watery kingdom of the moat and out of all time. Like tyrants throughout history, his reign is premised on being everlasting. As I mentioned on the episode, this wonderful scene reminded me very strongly of the poem Pike by Ted Hughes. And after digging it out, I am even sure that Hughes must have read T.H. White and been as affected as Arthur by Mr. P. Hughes's poem records his narrator's shivery thrall at the pike. It begins as a fearful appreciation of this ancient predator, and then it moves closer, appalled, to examine its behaviour and the nature of its growth and ends frozen by its primeval inscrutability. Hughes was particularly sensitive to the deep, buried side of human nature, and once said warningly, "Civilization is comparatively new. It is still a bit of a strain on our nerves. Pike was first published by the Jehenna Press in 1959, collected the following year in Ted Hughes's second collection of poetry, Lupercal. Among its first readers were his new wife, Sylvia Plath, with whom Hughes was then living in Boston, and her poetry teacher, Robert Lowell who called Pike a masterpiece. Written in America, it recalls fishing expeditions from Hughes's childhood in Yorkshire, an activity he loved for its quietude and focused communion with the natural world. Hughes later befriended the author and fellow fishing enthusiast Henry Williamson. Williamson also specialized in animal writing, and is most celebrated for Tarka the Otter, which Hughes described as a holy book, a soul book, written with the lifeblood of a poet. Williamson also wrote Salar the Salmon And despite what their names might make you think, both Tarka and Salar are works that attempt to write about the lives of animals without sentimentality or anthropomorphism. They are tales of the natural order, of animal lives and animal language, presented almost as if in translation for human readers. Fans of Wittgenstein might argue that any such attempt is doomed, as the philosopher famously said, if a lion could speak, we could not understand him meaning that the lion's language, even if translated into ours, would be so irretrievably cemented in and born from lion mythology, lion illusion, lion innuendo, lion semantics and lion idiom, that his meaning would be just as obscure to us as when we heard it in the original lion. Equally, however advanced a version of babblefish you used, attempts to translate a pike could only lead to diplomatic awkwardness, perhaps even a breakdown in negotiations. So the thinking goes that by rendering nature into language, we only capture something of ourselves, our human projections and suppositions of pikiness or otitude. Unlike translation, the transaction goes one way. It is not dialogue, but capture, taking ownership. Hughes commented on the affinity he felt between activities like hunting and fishing, catching animals, and writing poems. Poems have their own life, like animals, by which I mean that they seem quite separate from any person, even from their author, and nothing can be added to them or taken away without maiming or perhaps even killing them. The poem we are going to talk about today remains one of the most famous written by Ted Hughes, and he himself described it as one of his prize catches. I'm thrilled to be talking about Hughes with you. I've been wanting to do episodes on him for ages, and he is one of the writers I can truly say I'm a lifelong fan of. Like many other fans of his, I first read him as a child, and since I've always had a volume or two of his within arm's reach. Returning to Ted Hughes feels, in more ways than one, like returning home to test new ideas against the old ones, usually to discover with that mixture of delight and despair that, once again, the old ones got there first. So if you'd like to hear more episodes on his work, I'd be delighted to hear from you. You can get in touch by writing to eareadthis at gmail.com or chat to me on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram at eareadthis for all three. This is the first proper Hughes episode. I won't say TED Talk, but he has cameoed in an episode on the Metamorphoses where I talked about his tales from Ovid. Like those episodes, I'm going to first read the poem in full, then analyse it line by line. If you want to read along, there'll be a full reproduction on the Ear Read This Instagram. And I should say before I start that if you want to hear the poem read immeasurably better than I'm about to, there is on YouTube a clip of Hughes himself reading the poem, an excerpt of which you heard at the top of this episode, and I'll put a link to the video in the episode description box below. Now, without further ado, Pike. Pike. Three inches long, perfect. Pike in all parts, green-tigering the gold. Killers from the egg, the malevolent aged grin, they dance on the surface among the flies. Or move, stunned by their own grandeur, over a bed of emerald, silhouette of submarine delicacy and horror, a hundred feet long in their world. In ponds, under the heat-struck lily pads, gloom of their stillness, logged on last year's black leaves, watching upwards. Or hung in an amber cavern of weeds, the jaws hooked clamp and fangs, Not to be changed at this date. A life subdued to its instrument. The gills kneading quietly. And the pectorals. Three we kept behind glass. Jungled in weed. Three inches, four and four and a half. Fed fry to them. Suddenly there were two. Finally, one. With a sag belly and the grin it was born with. And indeed they spare nobody. Two, six pounds each, over two feet long high and dry and dead in the willow herb. One jammed past its gills down the other's gullet. The outside eye stared as a vice locks, the same iron in this eye, though its film shrank in death. A pond I fished fifty yards across, whose lilies and muscular tench had outlasted every visible stone of the monastery that planted them. Stilled legendary depth, it was as deep as England. It held Pike too immense to stir, So immense and old that past nightfall I dared not cast, but silently cast and fished, with the hair frozen on my head. For what might move, for what I might move, the still splashes on the dark pond, owls hushing the floating woods, frail on my ear against the dream, darkness beneath night's darkness had freed, that rose slowly towards me, watching. Pike starts with a jab, pike, three inches long, perfect, Pike, poking us like the weapon it was named after. Pike, three inches long, perfect, pike in all parts. The stab is, it's got this alliterative stabbing. Perfect as well, perfect already at three inches long, no further improvements required. Hughes returns to this a few times, and there is something horrible about being done in evolutionary terms, having nowhere further to go. Perfect already at three inches long. And it's made worse by the pike being a freshwater fish, living in this poem, closed off in ponds, not in the ever-changing sea, there's always a bigger fish to create competition and therefore promotes adaptation. For the pike, there is no competition. Like Mr P, they have ruled like tyrants for an unguessably long time and show no sign of giving up power. Uh, pike in all parts, parts sounding a bit unnatural, mechanical. Watch out for this. This is going to um, recur throughout as we go through this poem. Sounds like bits of a car, doesn't it? Each part, optimum pike. Green tigering the gold. Beautiful, that green tigering the gold. Tigering as a, as a verb to describe the coloration, but also drawing a link between the apex predator of the land and this apex predator of the pond. And Hughes really did see big cats and pike of um, as having a similar status. He said he'd had dreams of giant pike that were perhaps also leopards. A tigering also subtly makes the pike bigger in our imaginations, and this poem trades on on the pike's dangerousness. It needs us to think that pike, despite its size, is a threat. Uh, To do this, Ted Hughes has to shrink us, the reader, down just like Merlin shrank down Arthur. And he does this by tigering the pike, subtly equating a fish the size of your arm to an animal known as a man-eater. The colour is important too, green gold, reminiscent of of old England and nostalgia, those golden days of yore when merry England was green. But also, importantly, natural colour mixing with a a metallic one, nature meeting something man-made, specifically money. In Hughes's Tales from Ovid, the golden age of man living in harmony with nature was soon followed by another, dirtier gold. So now iron comes with its cruel ideas and gold with crueler. Turning against nature for the sake of gold is blasphemy in Shakespeare's history plays, in which the maintenance and well-being of England herself is tantamount. The King in Henry IV Part II says how quickly nature falls into revolt when gold becomes her object. Next, Hughes says, killers from the egg, the malevolent aged grin. So they're newborn and yet aged, bred only to kill, killers from the egg. Perhaps a whiff here of original sin, born sinners, born killers. But also, again, in evolutionary terms, pike have so far become pike, pike in all parts, they don't mess about. They start piking right from the get go, like the poem does, killing and doing it with a grin. They dance on the surface among the flies. Slightly enigmatic line, this. I'm not quite sure what's dancing on the surface among the flies. Is it the the pike fry, the killers from the egg? Or is it the grin, you know, wobbling just below the surface on which the flies are are buzzing around? Either way, the connection to the flies makes the pike even more evil-sounding. Flies being attracted to to death. Or move stunned by their own grandeur. That's more pike-like. Slow, threatening, watchful, regal uh, movements, not dancing. Over a bed of emerald, silhouette of submarine delicacy and horror. More green gorgeousness. Emerald meaning presumably the riverbed. But then again, there is this there is this little dance involving the surface going on through the poem. The pike has been tigered up to royalty, and we we think of majesty as looking down on its subjects. However, the pike must look up or grin out of the depth at the poet's narrator. But yes, the, the interplay with the surface gets complicated later on. Later in the poem, as night falls, the surface ripples and blurs what it contains with what it reflects. It disorientates us, so we can't tell what's up and what's down, as it often can happen when you're swimming out of your depth. I think reading these lines over a bed of emerald, you can picture it from either side, looking down into the pond or looking up from the riverbed as the silhouette hoves above you between you and the shimmering emerald surface. Submarine delicacy and horror Submarine meaning underwater, obviously, but also conjuring the image of machinery or a weapon, not an animal. Um, You really need to hear Hughes reading it for the way he renders delicacy and horror. Uh, Delicacy, you can picture the sort of finer points of the pike, the spines of the teeth, the fragile points on the fins, the the gill filaments. Uh, Remember what Hughes said about maiming. Part of the horror here is not just what a pike can do to you, but what can be done to a pike. There is a horror in imagining how fragile something is. 100 feet long in their world, and since we are in their world now, they are 100 feet long for us. We've gone way beyond tigering. You can imagine them passing overhead like a zeppelin. Uh, In ponds, under the heat-struck lily pads. Now, here's a change. Until now, we've been seeing the pike at a distance. There's been no location specified. Hughes has been building them up and building them up, and now he drops one into a pond, logging for us the thought of these malevolent beings being locked into small spaces. Uh, This is how he begins to bring us closer and closer to the pike. Lily pads. Uh, here we have these, these heat-struck heat lily pads. We have a sense of stagnation, again, of being in an evolutionary cul-de-sac. There's a reason Hugh says ponds and not rivers. He doesn't, want us to, to, he doesn't want to allow us the comfort of, of water rushing past and washing things away. Instead, we're stuck here in this hot, reeky pond, where in the depths something festers in the gloom of their stillness, logged on last year's black leaves, watching upwards. Again, images of rot, stagnation, predatory watchfulness. The last year has sunk into the pike's domain, painting it as a kind of sinkhole where all material will end up eventually. Or hung in an amber cavern of weeds. Amber, another colour of nostalgia and age, um, of prehistory. Hung is another um, clever little method of disorientating us. Hung from on high, not floating. Uh, The jaws hooked clamp and fangs, not to be changed at this date. This is very clever. Hughes is talking about an ancient animal predating us, its evolutionary journey vast, stretching back into deep time. And yet he also makes it sound like it's all just a little bit too late, not to be changed at this date. Again, as if these hooks and clamp are machinery that man has made and will soon turn on us, harm us or kill us, but it's far too late to change it. That line, not to be changed at this date, is a hint of what this poem begins to suggest, that we are somehow complicit in how the pike has turned out. A life subdued to its instrument. Absolutely key line the subjugation of life to instrument is what the poet is most transfixed by. It is a horrible thought, complicated organism reduced to a single purpose. Hughes thought the three most important poems in Lupercal were this one and two others featuring animals hawk roosting and view of a pig. In the former, the hawk revels in its success as an instrument of death and contemplates from a period of inaction, with no falsifying dream between my hooked head and hooked feet or in sleep rehearse perfect kills and eat. It's an intelligent creature reduced to a single purpose, but there is a characterful villainy to this hawk. It might be subdued to its instrument, or its instruments, but it revels in its murderousness and makes a charismatic weapon. My manners are tearing off heads, it says. Hawk roosting has all the usual blood of a Hughes poem, but not the horror lurking in Pike. For more of this we need a view of a pig, specifically a dead pig, its trotters struck straight out. The narrator of this poem thumps the corpse without feeling remorse. One feels guilty insulting the dead, he writes, walking on graves, but this pig did not seem able to accuse. He reflects that pigs must have hot blood, they feel like ovens, their bite is worse than a horse's, they chop a half-moon, clean out, they eat cinders, dead cats. Why is this stanza worse than the one before it? Or why does it make things worse? Before, the pig was, as the narrator says, just so much a poundage of lard and pork. But somehow, in describing its behaviour, the complex, unpredictable behaviour of pigs in life, biting half-moons out of human flesh, eating cinders, the scene has become more than just viscerally grotesque. Yes, the pink eyelashes and struck-out trotters of a dead pig are disgusting and and horribly familiar to us, but it is when we hear that of the pig's actions and habits, the fact that its squeal was like the rendering of metal, the fact of it having done something unexpected, that we feel the full horror of a life subdued, just as here the life of a pike has been subdued to its instrument. In The Sword and the Stone, we hear what life remains in one pike before the instrument takes him over. Mr P tells Arthur, love is a trick played on us by the forces of evolution. Pleasure is the bait laid down by the same. There is only power, Power is of the individual mind, but the mind's power is not enough. Power of the body decides everything in the end, and only might is right. Now I think it is time you should go away, for I find this conversation uninteresting and exhausting. I think you ought to go away really almost at once, in case my disillusioned mouth should suddenly determine to introduce you to my great gills, which have teeth in them also. He snaps at Arthur as he leaves, unable to suppress the habits of an instrument. Coincidentally, in the epic poem of Finnish mythology, Kalevala, a harp is made from the jawbone of a pike, pegged with its teeth. Hughes was not the first to write of subduing the pike's life to an instrument. Moving on, the gills kneading quietly and the pectorals. The stanza ends with this quietly perfect line the gills kneading quietly and the pectorals. With kneading, you can just see the gills and pectoral fins of the pike working away as it hovers or hoves. There's something about kneading that makes them sound like they're plotting as they do it, like flies rubbing their hands together. And note that he hasn't said guilds and pectorals needing quietly, but guilds needing quietly and the pectorals. By doing so we are left hanging. It has the wonderful effect of suggesting they are needing and will go on kneading perpetually. The unfinished line also gives us a nice transition into the next, more conversational stanza. Three we kept behind glass, jungled in weed, three inches four and four and a half. Fed fry to them. Suddenly there were two, finally one. It's not specified who the we are, though it sounds likely it might be the poet as a child, either with siblings or friends or family. Kept behind glass is a really nice way of making kept in a tank or fishbowl sound more like a safety precaution. Kept them at bay, behind glass. This might be pushing it a bit, but the interrupted count in this stanza, three, four, four and a half, fry, sounding a little bit like the anticipated next number, Jerking suddenly back to two again might encourage the impression that the pike considers itself done, complete, perfect. Uh, No further progression required. We won't be reaching five. This one is done already. It's important that the poet doesn't see what obviously happens here, that one of the pike eats the other two. The unexplained disappearance makes it much more menacing, taunting. The pike left watching the poet with a sag belly and the grin it was born with. Now, there's a lot going on in the next stanza in a bit, um, so... We need to go at it in a chunk. And indeed, they spare nobody. Two, six pounds each, over two feet long, high and dry and dead in the willow herb. One jammed past its gills down the other's gullet, the outside eye stared as a vice locks, the same iron in this eye, though its film shrank in death. First off, they spare nobody, for obvious reasons so much more effective than the more biologically accurate, they spare nothing. Hughes has done everything possible to make pike sound like a danger to humans, a danger to everybody, as opposed to everything in the pond. Dangerous to us, as perhaps their prehistoric ancestors might have been. The surface-level point being made is that pike do only what pike do best, what nature tells them to do, which is kill. As Falstaff says in part two of Henry IV, If the young dace be a bait for the old pike, I see no reason in the law of nature, but I may snap at him. It's the next bit that's a little um, strange. So now we have these two dead pike floating in the willow herb looking as if they might have drowned after one tried to eat the other willow herb is a strangely precise reference and brings to mind ophelia from hamlet who drowns herself under a willow her clothes spread wide and mermaid like a while they bore her up which time she chanted snatches of old tunes as one incapable of her own distress or like a creature native and endued unto that element But long it could not be till that her garments, heavy with their drink, pulled the poor wretch from her melodious lay to muddy death. This seems at first an incongruous, weird comparison, the possible suicide of the mentally disturbed Ophelia and two pike choked on greed. But there is a similar kind of dread in Gertrude's words, uh, which I just quoted there, and the words of Hughes or his narrator. Both are repelled by the spectacle of creatures incapable of their own distress. Because the narrator has seen life in the pike, a grinning callousness, perhaps an evil but an intelligence there all the same. And it is a creature, now native and endued unto the element of killing. It's unable to stop itself, unable to suppress its instrumentation, just as Ophelia goes on singing even as she drowns. Again, as the poet looks into the pike's eye, the horror we feel is in supposing what life might remain, deep buried and subdued to its instrument, terrified perhaps, but unable to resist doing what it is made to do jammed past its gills and as a vice locks, again, sounding like haywire machinery, like nothing natural. A vice locks in particular sounds like it might be removed from the pike. Not a deliberate action, but a mechanical one against the pike's wishes. And with the outside eye, we get the horrible sense of the two pike becoming one abomination with an outside eye and therefore an inside eye, two tails at either end, which propelling them against each other makes another way of visualising evolution in a cul-de-sac. If you've listened to the episodes on Shakespeare's history plays, you'll know how much emphasis is placed on aberrations in nature, particularly cannibalism, reflecting times of civil war or national division. Whilst writing Sailor the Salmon, Henry Williamson kept a diary which recorded his fishing expeditions in Devon. In them, he makes repeated reference to a big cannibal, which looks like a pike. Again, I saw that damned cannibal pike. Wouldn't take the food I throw in. Is it a confirmed cannibal now? Cannibalism, though apparently quite... Natural, to many species of fish, is traditionally seen as slapping nature in the face. And in the next line in the Hughes poem, we get the same iron in this eye. And with iron, we of course have another non-natural material, one that has great significance in the creation myths of Ovid. The age of iron being the one in which man turned irrevocably against nature, to war. Described in the Hughes version of the Metamorphoses here. The day of evil dawns. Modesty, loyalty, truth, go up like a mist a morning sigh off a graveyard. Pike, named after a weapon, has iron in its eye. Again, a suggestion of human complicity in what the pike has become, at odds with the notion of it being an evolutionary dropout. Is this due to our interference? What has the pike learned watching humans all these centuries? Though its film shrank in death, film is another word where Hughes gets to have it both ways, both biologically accurate and summoning the image of something mechanical. The film shrank, the film of the eye, and the film of a reel, perhaps, running out. Moving on to the next stanza, A pond I fished 50 yards across. Now Hughes has been careful to keep feeding us numbers, subtly growing his pike towards the end. If you read the play top to bottom, you get three, three inches four, four and a half, the one that ate the other two presumably bigger with his sag belly, and next we hear of the other two over two feet long. Now here we are left to imagine how large a pike might be living in a pond that Hughes fished 50 yards across unchecked growth, fatness, or swelling that might resemble pregnancy is another calling card from the imagery of the history plays. Remember Rumour saying at the start of part two of Henry IV, the big year swollen with some other grief is thought with child by the stern tyrant war. Hughes described the pike he fished as a youngster looking like railway sleepers, adding, I suppose they are even bigger by now. In the poem, the pond whose lilies and muscular tench had outlasted every visible stone of the monastery that planted them, So the pike's domain, made by or interfered with by humans, has outlasted them. It is unknowably ancient. Again, the horrible thought of the pike taking something from the influence of humans and building on it, secretly. Still the legendary depth, it was as deep as England. A portal, then, to another time. The world has moved on, but the pike remain in a kind of primeval stasis. It held pike too immense to stir. An image now of something either so vast as to not even bother registering puny little you, or so vast that you wouldn't even notice it stirring like an island that turns out to be a whale. So immense and old that past nightfall I dared not cast, but silently cast and fished. Bit of a puzzle this, does he mean here that I dared not cast other than to do so silently, or is he not casting at all and only imagining he is, with the hair frozen on my head for what might move, for what I might move? That's eyes as in eyeball, for those not reading along. The still splashes on the dark pond, owls hushing the floating woods. Now with floating woods, we get a feeling of the pike world superseding ours. Are these woods reflected in the surface, or is the pond, the world of the pike, swallowed the world outside? Just like last year's black leaves. Frail on my ear against the dream, darkness beneath night's darkness had freed that rose slowly towards me, Watching. The dream of the pike is darkness blacker than night. Hughes felt connected to the ancient natural rhythms of life while fishing, and here we end on a note of hushed respect, confronting the inexplicable oldness and otherness of this creature. We're back to Wittgenstein and his lion. Despite any human effort, it will remain inscrutable. But contradicting this otherness of the pike throughout has been its fusing with modern, man-made materials. At times, Hughes' narrator has sounded a bit like he is half horrified, half slobbering over a new car. The perfect parts, the vice, the clamp, the hook. The sleek hulk of a submarine. And all this is only panelling made with that other industrial human material, language. In putting the pike into words, Hughes has endued it with a human element, in a way that not only reminds us of, but enacts the Iron Age crime of humans' subjugating nature. Hughes' friend Henry Williamson shared a feeling of reverence towards the natural world, but it took him, when mixed with human politics, down a very dark path. His reputation as a writer has always been marred by his fascist sympathies and admiration for Adolf Hitler, something that Hughes bravely, and in today's world unthinkably, defended Williamson for, saying that from the older writer's keen feeling for a biological law, the biological struggle against entropy grew his social and political formulations with all the attendant dangers of abstract language. Williamson was something of an eco-warrior, and as Jonathan Bate writes in his biography of Ted Hughes, The lines of correspondence between green thinking, back to the land, and fascism, blood and soil, are complex and troubling. The correspondence is there in the language of Shakespeare's history plays, without of course the modern gadgets, eco-activism or fascism. At the very start of Henry IV Part One, the king announces, No more the thirsty entrance of this soil shall daub her lips with her own children's blood. Here, the protection of nature is used as political leverage, as a weapon. The weapon the narrator in Pike so admires, is to some degree one of his own making. For just as in the Kalevala, a harp was made from the pike's bones. In this prize catch of a poem, the ancient bones of a pike have been likewise subdued to the instrument of human poetry. That just about wraps it up for today, guys. I hope you've enjoyed this um this first poem on on Ted Hughes. Like I say, if you'd like to hear more, uh, get in touch. Let me know. Pick out your favourite um, uh, prize catches of Hughes. Um, there's plenty more to go at. Like I said, you can get in touch at ereadthis@gmail.com. at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can um, either leave us a review or visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash And I should just also mention that uh, recently I've also been making some videos for the this, um YouTube page, um, just quick little sort of spontaneous vlogs uh, on some matter uh, relating to the podcast, but some other sort of reading concerns as well. So um, go and check that- those out as well if you're interested. Uh, But until next time, that's all from me. Happy reading.